What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver. It's time for a State of the Union address, so please bear with me. By now, you have probably heard that Sports Illustrated went through staffing changes last week that affected Andrew Sharp. It's not my place to get into those details, obviously, but I have spoken to Andrew and he sounded to me like he was in good spirits. Many people have reached out to ask what this means for Open Floor. Thank you so much for all the messages. When it comes to NBA podcast hosting, Andrew is quote-unquote out indefinitely. Now, I know that's a frustrating and vague term, but it's the truth. Look, no surgery is required, but we all know that it could take some time for Andrew to work out what his next move will be. Here's the headline from this entire speech, okay? Andrew is a brother to me, and I am hopeful that we will be able to co-host an NBA podcast together soon. Once he's ready, I'm ready. I have given him that message. Andrew and I went through a similar process of uncertainty when I joined the Washington Post last year. We came through that just fine, which makes me optimistic. But of course, there are always going to be hurdles. The Open Floor Globe must know that you guys are a major stakeholder in all decisions about the show. We heard from hundreds of people who thanked and saluted Andrew, many of whom discussed the impact that the podcast has had on their lives during tough times. I can relate. I've talked basketball with Andrew from emergency room beds and funeral homes. This podcast is very personal to me. After some careful thinking, I believe the right thing for me to do, both for myself and for you guys, is to put out the best podcast that I can while things shake out. As an NBA coach once told me when I kept pestering him about the uncertain status of one of his stars, quote, the schedule is the schedule. They aren't going to cancel the games. We keep playing. I continue to have a contract with SI that I signed a few months ago. I will honor that contract, and I have communicated that to SI. Our plan is to continue with two shows per week, beginning today. Now, I do have some great news. Rob Mahoney has graciously agreed to step in as co-host. I asked for Rob's help because I trust him and because I love talking basketball with him. You guys might be wondering what you can do. The best thing you can do is email openfloormail at gmail.com right now with Sharp in the subject line. Everyone who emails will be added to a list that will receive major podcast status updates from me. I promise I won't spam you. Email sharp to openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Okay, one final note here. There is no one in the world who has spent more time and mental energy trying to take down Andrew Sharp than I have, so that makes me uniquely qualified to say this. I am not worried about Andrew Sharp, and you should not worry about Andrew Sharp. He is talented, tough-minded, and incredibly well-respected by all the folks who matter. There is zero doubt in my mind that great things are coming for him in the very near future. Okay, enough with all this. Let's call Rob and keep playing. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated. Now, Rob, I spent all weekend racking my brain trying to come up with some big fireworks style intro for your first episode here as co-host of open floor but wouldn't you know it we got a nuclear bomb of an international incident dropped on both of us when daryl morey decided to tweet uh, in support of the hong kong protesters thereby angering the entire country of china and all of its business leaders so Welcome to Open Floor. I hope you brought your college degree. I hope you brought your political speak. Are you ready to dig in deep here on what I think is one of the biggest scandals the NBA has seen in probably, you know, the last decade? I'm very ready. And, you know, it's nice of the universe to provide some fireworks in moments like that to really serve it up for us nicely. 
One of my biggest concerns in life, frankly, is tweeting something that could lead to nuclear war, just accidentally walking into it. <laughs> I think Daryl Morey is living all of our worst nightmare right now, isn't he? Because it seemed to me like this was completely inadvertent. I do believe his support of the Hong Kong protesters uh, was sincere, but I don't think he imagined for a moment that the kind of fallout that took place where you've got U.S. senators, U.S. representatives, presidential candidates, Chinese uh, Basketball Association, the consulate of China in Houston, all angered and and furious with either Daryl Morey or the NBA's response. There's no way he could see that coming, right? No. I mean, to borrow a turn of phrase from uh, our friend Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, the internet has a proportionality problem where anything happens and you just get these waves and waves and waves of feedback. And when you're talking about one of the most populated countries in the world, and not only that, but one in the midst of some political turmoil, any little you know match that you're throwing into that haystack is just going to send the whole thing up in flames. There's no doubt. And I don't think we're letting Daryl Morey off the hook here. I certainly am not going to let the NBA off the hook here. Uh, but I, I agree completely. Proportionality definitely got lost here over the last 72 hours. I think the best plan of attack, Rob, is to just quickly summarize who said what when, um, the responses that came through, and then maybe we can dig into some of the uh, the most pertinent topics that uh, you know flow from there. So Daryl Morey on Friday tweeted very simply, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. It was a little image. Immediately, he was bombarded by Chinese social media users in particular uh, who were calling for his job, who were basically using uh, online slang to to come after him. They were very, very angry. Uh, Quickly after that, Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta, who's a little bit of a live wire, came through and he tried to tamp down the the brewing controversy. He said, listen, Daryl Morey does not speak for the Houston Rockets. And you rarely see that kind of distancing publicly between an owner uh, and a general manager. So already this was an unusual situation, but it spiraled from there. Uh, Clearly the Chinese uh, authorities, whether it's the government, whether it's the Chinese Basketball Association, whether it's Chinese businessmen, uh, you know, like the Brooklyn Nets owner, Joe Tsai, uh, looked at Maury's statement as being completely out of bounds, as being uh, maybe an outsider's commentary on what they view as sort of a third rail issue uh, within Chinese politics. Now, there's been protests going on uh, in Hong Kong for the last four or five months. Uh, they began as a response to an extradition law that was going to allow China to basically take people from Hong Kong uh, and, and prosecute them in China. Uh, that has morphed into more general uh, pro-democracy type protests. Uh, and it's been a real sore subject, I think, for the Chinese government you know, all summer long. Now, uh, they proceeded with essentially a boycott or a severing of ties with the Houston Rockets. So Chinese sponsors cut ties with the Rockets. The Chinese Basketball Association, which is led by Yao Ming, former uh, Rocket star, uh, issued a very sternly worded statement. Uh, Tencent, the Chinese rights holder uh, for the NBA, essentially said they wouldn't broadcast Rockets games and were offering all fans the ability to uh, change which team they wanted to watch in their version of League Pass, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, the NBA uh, eventually stepped forward and kind of in conjunction with Daryl Morey issued statements on Sunday night. Morey's uh, second statement was not an apology, but he did say it wasn't his intention to offend anyone and that he didn't maybe have a full understanding of the complex issues going on in Hong Kong. The NBA statement uh, really tried to have it both ways. 
they did not mention the protesters at all. They did stand up for Daryl Morey's, you know, kind of freedom of expression uh, and his right to, to express himself politically. But they also, you know, some would say bent over backwards to the Chinese government, uh, saying that they had a lot of respect for Chinese culture and history. And the NBA statement is really what a lot of people latched onto because by not reaffirming, uh, you know, basic American values of equality and uh, and democracy and so forth, uh, it made them look to a lot of people, including many prominent politicians, including whether it's Elizabeth Warren, Ted Cruz, I mean, people on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, it made them look like they were kowtowing to China and not standing up for American values. So after everyone got in their digs at the NBA's expense on Monday, Adam Silver essentially said he's still back Daryl Morey. Uh, the NBA still plans to continue its preseason exhibition games this week involving the Los Angeles Lakers and the Brooklyn Nets in China. Those are going forward um, as planned. And we don't really have a resolution to whether uh, the Chinese uh, you know, leaders are going to forgive Daryl Morey and the Houston Rockets and go back to business as usual, or whether these economic threats that the Chinese uh, you know, have made are going to be you know, long-lasting and sort of indefinite going forward. So there you go, Rob. All of that from one tweet. That's what I said. <laughs> that is an absolute nightmare for Daryl Morey. And so here's my question. And this is, you know, it's kind of a hot takey question, but I think it's the one that has to be asked. Are you surprised Daryl Morey wasn't fired in this? I mean, the NBA didn't even discipline him. But are you surprised he didn't lose his job given the scale of the backlash and given the amount of money that's potentially at stake here? It's crazy that we have to consider it, isn't it? I mean, I was trying to follow up on that as it was happening, just like everybody else, uh, trying to figure out the state of, you know, whether Maury was going to be made the fall guy in this. And we're talking about one of the better general managers in the NBA, a guy with a great track record who's been entrenched with his franchise for a long time, who, as far as I'm concerned, sent an image that's, you know, uh, that uh, advocates for a democratic movement. And yet that's the thing that would ultimately bring him down or would ultimately cause, you know, put a thorn in the NBA's side. I mean, that's kind of the weird state where we are, where the NBA has so much financially riding on this particular market. And it's a market embedded in a country with a government you don't necessarily want to be in bed with. And that puts the NBA in such a precarious situation with stuff like this. And it's going to be a recurring problem. This is this is an inevitability so long as the NBA wants to do business in China and wants to do business around the world, where once you're trying to make your game international, all of a sudden you have to deal with a lot of international political uh, complications that arise as a result of that. No, it's a great point. And so let's underscore something here up front. Uh, this might feel a little bit random, especially to our American listeners. They're thinking, wait a minute, you stand uh, for fight for freedom. That's not exactly the most uh, uh, you know, hard-edged political slogan. Like, why is everybody freaking out about this? I think there's a few factors. First of all, um, the Chinese audience views what's happening in Hong Kong completely differently than the American audience. As sort of the Nets owner put forward, there's this long history uh, between China and Hong Kong. It goes back to the colonial days. They take it very personally. Uh, they view the protesters in an entirely different light than Americans uh, view the protesters. So that's number one. Well, it, should be, two, it should be noted, too, in regard to Joe Tsai's statement. I mean, he has a huge financial interest personally in maintaining this relationship between the NBA and specifically the integrity of the Chinese market and his reputation there. So everyone has their, their little corner they're coming from in all this for sure. No, great point. Uh, also at play here is 
the relationship between the Houston Rockets and Chinese fans, right? Because this is going back since Yao Ming uh, was drafted in 2002. The Rockets have done Chinese New Year's jerseys. You've got guys like James Harden and Russell Westbrook who have been to China year after year after year uh, promoting sneakers as part of their tours. Uh, you know, the, the Rockets for years actually had Chinese beat writers following them around the uh, you know the United States game after game after game, tracking Yao's progress. If you go to their website, they have an entire version of their website in Chinese. I mean, the list goes on, right? So this is not your typical NBA team. And I think that they view Daryl Morey as being a representative of an organization that they have really uh, come to trust and love over the years. So it's not just that he's an American outsider who's injecting himself into what they would view as a domestic political uh, issue. It's almost an act of betrayal in a way too, right? It's like this person who you thought was kind of part of the family uh, to a certain degree based on his ties with that organization, now doing the unthinkable and speaking out against the Chinese government in their eyes. So I think that's part of the reason why this escalated so quickly. Um, Let me ask you this, Rob, when you're looking at all of the American politicians who are reacting, I think a lot of people on the right were accusing Adam Silver and the NBA of, of being soft on China, of putting uh, their money before their principles. And I think a lot of people on the left were saying, well, look, let's just stand up for these protesters. Why are we not saying anything about their cause uh, in the second round of statements and the, and the cleanup efforts and all of that? Uh, I'm curious. I mean, if you were advised in the NBA, if you were part of that PR meeting over the weekend, is there anything that you would have maybe done differently or told them to try to include in their response Uh, Because it does seem like a situation where they were really backed into a corner, right? It's not like they can cut ties with China, um, you know, from the financial standpoint. But is there anything that you think that they should have done differently? No, I mean, I think from a PR perspective, you're absolutely right. It's it's really a no-win situation because you want to advocate as you have for the members of your league to profess their views, to talk about some political things in an educated way, in a way that's respectful to all parties involved. And yet you also want to maintain this huge financial market that's pretty much key to the NBA's international growth. And so from a PR perspective, that's such a tough line to walk. I I don't know that there's much they could have done other than anticipate this a bit more than perhaps they did. I mean, again, as I was saying, this is from from day one from the NBA's relationship with China and with trying to get, you know, know, preseason games between, you know, CBA teams and NBA teams playing some preseason schedule over there, getting some exhibition stuff going, some goodwill going. That's all well and good, but as soon as you start entering into that kind of relationship, you have to be able to reckon with everything that's going on politically in that country, just like other countries do when they come play games here and they're asked about our political leanings and our political situation as well. And so the NBA has to be prepared for that. They have to be prepared for it anywhere they play a game, anywhere there's any kind of NBA-sponsored product or endorsed product, because that's the reality of the world we live in. If, if you want to be the world's game, you have to be ready for the world's problems. That's a really, really good way to put it. I also think we should uh, clarify this, Rob. The NBA can't walk away from China, okay? I think there were some politicians who were sort of suggesting that they do that. That's not going to happen, and I think we need to explain why. I mean, when you look at... Uh, the NBA's relationship with China, first of all, it goes back like 30-something years, right? They have been putting in a lot of effort. It has its own company, NBA China, in China, with dozens, if not hundreds, of employees trying to conduct business over there, grow the game over there. More people watched NBA content in China last year, somewhere around 500 to 600 million people, than there are people living in the United States total, period, right? So that gives you a sense of the scale that the NBA is dealing with. And also more people watched the NBA Finals game six 
on Tencent streaming services in China than watched on television in the United States, right? So there's no way, it's way too late for, oh, we're dropping China. We just can't be involved with China anymore. I mean, that ship has already sailed. And in fact, I think Adam Silver, if you're talking about public figures, business figures in America, especially in American sports, he's been more pro-China than just about anyone else that's out there. He's constantly hyping up China's incredible uh, economic opportunity, the platform of reaching those fans, their love of the game, uh, and so on and so on and so on. So I think we shouldn't be naive in what you're calling for the NBA to do here. They're not going to walk away from China. And even uh, you know Rick Wells, the COO of the Golden State Warriors, was on C- uh, CNBC already on Monday trying to spin this forward saying, look, in six months, no one's going to remember this. Everything will be back to normal. Things are going to be fine. I do think to a certain degree, because he worked at the NBA league office for a long time, I think that's the league's uh, you know, general impression or takeaway of, of kind of the, the state of affairs. But I'm going to ask you, Rob, uh, the NBA gets a lot of credit and Adam Silver individually gets a lot of credit for being progressive, woke, tolerant, creating a different kind of environment around the NBA, whether it's with, uh, you know, the LGBTQ rights, whether it's with player empowerment voices and all these different issues. Is he a hypocrite? I mean, is the NBA, did they get exposed here a little bit uh, in terms of the argument that, uh, you know, they're putting money over their actual principles? I think they did tell on tell themselves a little bit in that regard. You know, I think it's very easy to be performatively political when the stakes are low. When you're talking about riding in the pride parade in a year where, you know, that's a socially okay thing to do, uh, you know, fighting against the bathroom bills in Charlotte when the All-Star game is going to be there in North Carolina. You know, that that's a stance that you can you can take as a liberal-leaning league with a liberal-leaning fan base and come out okay. But I think most of it comes from the fact that the bar is so low, politically speaking, in terms of professional sports leagues and not just falling all over themselves. That the <laughs> wait, NBA wait, wait. So you're saying if you're woker than the NFL, that's not actually that <laughs> impressive? Not actually that impressive, but... As an NBA fan, you take it. It's certainly better than the alternative to be where the NFL is or Major League Baseball is. You know, these sports that I think are entrenched in a much more antiquated mindset in a lot of ways. I think the NBA is, is pretty forward-thinking in terms of its operations, pretty forward-thinking in terms of the ways it approaches health and mental health and things like that. But ultimately, like, I mean, this, is, this should be a slam dunk in terms of the politics involved for the NBA. You're talking about, you know, protests fighting its extradition, which are essentially fighting, you know, advocating for a democratic movement and trying to protect it in its infancy in Hong Kong. You're talking about a situation where a teenage protester was shot. You're talking about a country that has, you know, put people in camps based on their religion in terms of mainland China. The politics involved, and I think this is where kind of the the broader conversation in the U.S. has blown up, should be so overwhelmingly to one side. And yet the NBA almost has to lean the other way financially based on everything it's invested there. No, it's amazing. Usually when you're wrong in America, at least you have at least 40% of people having your back. I mean, the NBA was getting it from everyone. When Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz are both calling (laughs) you out and rushing to call you out, that's a bad, bad day, my friend. I feel Um, like we may have buried the lead here in the sense that is Elizabeth Warren now a member of the Open Floor Globe after retweeting your story about this? Look, this is how you just prove that you're a veteran podcast co-host by, you know, buttering me up by mentioning that Elizabeth Warren 
uh, retweeted this story. It was one of the greatest highlights of my writing career. I'm not sure if she's a member of the Open Floor Globe, but I'm going to call myself an Elizabethan from here going forward. I'm pretty excited yeah. about that. I encourage all politicians to retweet me at Ben Golliver and, and at Ben.Golliver on Instagram as well. Rob, you know how we do it here. We got to get the Instagram plugs in. Um, one more thing, though, about social media and Daryl Morey. He kind of comes off as the anti-Colin Kaepernick here. I got to be honest. It's like Colin Kaepernick is like, you know what? I've really thought long and hard about these ideas. I know what I believe. I'm going to stand by my principles. If it costs me my job, I'm still not going to waver, and I'm going to keep going with it. Daryl Morey, it's like, okay, maybe I'm just randomly tweeting about Hong Kong. Maybe he does really passionately care about it. I don't know. At the first sign of flack, he deletes it. Uh, you know, as the thing unfolds, he has to issue this statement where he really muddies the water and does not stand with the protesters and neither does the league around him. Um, I think I understand taking the pragmatic view. I understand, you know, trying to get back to business as usual as quickly as possible when you kind of walk into a storm that you created without really realizing that it was going to happen. I don't think it was necessarily uh, unreasonable for him given his, you know, long-standing relationship with Chinese fans to maybe have a better understanding that he shouldn't have tweeted what he did. Um, but I agree with you that by American standards, it was, uh, you know, pretty innocuous in terms of what he was saying there. Um, but clearly by the standards of the people who mattered in this case, it was it was viewed as inflammatory. And I think he probably should have had uh, at least a passing uh, understanding of that. And also from a timing perspective, when the NBA is going over to Asia, uh, the Rockets are playing in Japan, the, sh the focus should be on the game. Of course it should be in those kinds of situations. For him to distract from that um, you know, with this kind of a statement and not being willing to stand behind it, uh, I think it's a bad look. Now, he did not apologize to uh, the Chinese government or anyone else in his follow-up statement. Uh, James Harden, however, did kind of apologize on behalf of you know everyone. He said, we, we're sorry. Um, I think, though, that Maury owes an apology to the Hong Kong protesters here, because I think the big takeaway from all of this mess is that China was able to flex on the United States. China was able to flex on a major American institution, the NBA, and they basically you know, had no major response for it. They didn't stand up. Uh, they didn't push back. Uh, in any major way. And China essentially comes out, you know, winning the pre press conference, winning the day. I think that winds up hurting the movement that he was supposedly trying to help with his original tweet. Uh, and I think once the dust settles, uh, you know, he needs to make that right. Well, I think it speaks to what you mentioned earlier in terms of this being at least apparently pretty unintentional. Like this seems like Daryl Morey called it cause an accidental international crisis rather than you know, taking a, a real pointed stand that he intended to kind of see through to the end. And to be fair, that may be the only reason he has his job is because he deleted that tweet. And he, you know, although he didn't apologize, was able to kind of contextualize and walk certain elements of that back. I, I do think that this, you know, in time, maybe this will be forgotten in terms of the international audience and specifically the Chinese audience for the NBA. But I do think this irreparably changes their relationship to the Rockets. I think this, you know, maybe they still... The league as a whole is still super healthy there, ultimately a great and profitable product. But the relationship with the Rockets is going to be different. And I don't think this news cycle is going away anytime soon. I mean, LeBron James is going to be asked about this. Every superstar in the league is going to be asked about this. And those guys all individually have a lot at stake in terms of their shoes and their merchandise and their brands. 
selling in China as well. So I don't think this is anywhere near the end of this for the NBA. As we've already seen other corporations, two other companies from you know Versace and Coach and some of these other uh, companies that have run ads that have been perceived in any way as being a slight against China or the Chinese government or a reference to the Hong Kong protests have had to walk back and apologize things as well. This is this is really only the beginning of what's going to be a massive international issue. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. For sure. Two final thoughts here, and then we're going to move on to some questions uh, from the Open Floor Globe. They send in so many good ones for us, Rob. Uh, first thought is this. I think the players will wind up being a little bit more protected than Maury uh, or the league office because they have kind of an easier out here. They can say, look, my relationship with China is the Chinese fans who I meet when I go on tour. It's the Chinese fans who buy my shoes. It's the Chinese fans who buy my jersey or play as my likeness on a video game. I've got nothing but love for them. I want to show them love as far as politics. You know, I'm not really going to get into it. I think that that will pretty much work for superstars, uh, whether it's James Harden or any of these other guys who are going to get asked about it. I think that that's sort of, you know, safe ground and most people uh, would understand that. Now, clearly, it's a different relationship when the NBA and its teams are, you know, strategizing for decades about how to tap this market and, and make money off of it. I think that they're social responsibility expectations from the average viewer uh, are significantly higher. Uh, and my last thought on uh, on this topic is this. You're right. It's a reckoning for the Rockets with regard to China, but it's also definitely a reckoning for the entire NBA with regard to its global strategy. I think they have always painted uh, you know, a country like China by the size of its potential market, how many eyeballs, how many viewers, how many streamers, uh, and that kind of a you know a conversation, and that's not going to be the conversation anymore. You know, I think that's this is going to be sort of the canary in the coal mine moment where they realize a country like China is not just based on its population numbers or these other stats that they can throw out there about engagement, but it's a political powerhouse that can put you into all sorts of conflicts of interest, that can raise human rights issues, that can you know even potentially involve uh, international diplomacy type questions uh, when you're looking at trade wars. Uh, and everything else along those lines. The NBA is going to have to really take a step back and rethink, uh, you know, I think it's messaging and its relationship towards China publicly, because I think while this is such an extraordinary situation, uh, it could easily happen again. You know, it, we saw how quickly this one devolved from zero to 100, like Drake would say, real quick, that could happen again. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, we're, we're all on notice now. I and mean, we, we can't say that we didn't see it coming the next time it comes around. Okay, Rob, 
on to some basketball stuff. We got some really interesting questions this week, and some of them are just philosophical or style of play type questions from the emailers. They emailed us at openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. I'm going to tee you up with a really good question right off the top from Peter. He says, please explain what Giannis does better than Anthony Davis. When I look at them, I see equally tall, long, athletic, explosive, and skilled players, except that AD can shoot better and can play more off the ball. If we simulated the 2019 season, but they were traded for each other, wouldn't Anthony Davis in Milwaukee be just as effective and MVP worthy playing in a perfect system for his talents in a weaker conference? And Giannis in New Orleans would face the same frustrations of a mismanaged roster in a brutal conference that uh, that hampered Anthony Davis. Yet, in spite of all this, Peter says, I still honestly believe that Giannis is the better player. Why is that? So why is that, Rob? Well, doesn't a lot of it come down to the fact that Giannis can handle the ball and AD, at least to this point in his career, hasn't done that so much? I mean, just having that level of impact on every offensive possession, potentially, I think puts you in a different category. It allows you a different access in terms of impact on the game. And so you have that piece of it combined with the fact that we're talking about a healthier player. We're talking about a player who, frankly, in terms of last season, showed up for his team in a way that Davis did not. I think there are a lot of those little variables that kind of turn it in Giannis's favor. But this is something we've talked about a lot. I know in, in previous years of doing the top 100, Giannis and AD were always really close. Yeah, they, they have been really close. I think Giannis passed him last year mainly because he proved that he could be an elite playmaker with the ball in his hands, the head of the snake on offense, that he could run a five-out system, that he could make the right reads, kicking out to shooters, and that he could just put constant pressure going downhill on the defense and hardly anyone could stop him. Now, I mentioned this on the podcast a couple weeks ago, uh, but Anthony Davis basically spent his summer playing like a perimeter player, shooting three-pointers, working on his ball handling, trying to take guys off the dribble, creating shots off the dribble, uh, you know, working on his stop-and-pop jumpers. It was an outside-in summer for Anthony Davis. You could almost say he was doing Kevin Durant-like things all summer long in terms of what he was working on. So I think that he understands that's the next evolution of his game, right? Like if he wants to really increase his overall offensive impact, if he wants to be uh, the type of player who raises his team, uh, their offensive efficiency across the board, uh, the more ways he can beat a defense, the better. Uh, and the more time you know he, that he's dealing with the ball and creating and drawing attention and those kinds of things, the better for his teammates. Now, we've seen him so far in one preseason game against the Warriors. And I got to admit, I mean, it was a spectacular performance by Anthony Davis. Uh, they were running a lot of lobs for him. No surprise there. Rajon Rondo, LeBron James, he was finishing that. But we also saw some of the perimeter stuff that I'm mentioning, um, you know, already coming to fruition. So I think for Anthony Davis believers, this is going to be, you know, a very, very exciting season. Um, but I do agree with Peter. I, I think Giannis is still a better player. And the one thing I would like to see Anthony Davis improve on, if he wants to get into that Giannis category for me, um, it's the night-to-night kill instinct. That's one of the greatest things about Giannis is that, uh, you know, over these last couple of years, as he's evolved into a superstar player, the same work ethic that helped him improve his individual skills has really got him to the point where he just wants to punish, demolish, eviscerate his opponents game after game after game. I want to see the same thing from Anthony Davis. It's, it's in there somewhere. He's a nice kid. I think everyone would say that. He's a very nice kid. Let's see, you know, some of the the anger come out a little bit. Let's see the domination come out a little bit because he's going to be in a situation now with LeBron where he should have those kinds of opportunities on a consistent basis. Uh, he's going to have the spotlight on him. So let's see that, Anthony. 
And to push back a little on the premise, too, I'm not sure I buy that, you know, Milwaukee is, is a good team, well-coached team, positioned very well in terms of the way that, ro- the way that roster is constructed. But I don't think it's, like, overwhelmingly better than some of the teams that Anthony Davis has had in New Orleans. You know, starting from the top, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, the conversation of who's better between Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday is at least pretty complicated. You know, you may even take a holiday in that conversation. And I think that, you know, things have been mismanaged at times, but there have been some pretty good players who have gone through there. And the Pelicans, for a variety of reasons, just haven't been consistently very good. And I think that's one thing in Giannis's favor, where you're talking about a guy coming off of a historically pretty dominant season in terms of margin of victory and things like that, compared with a player in Davis who, year by year, kind of has struggled to even make his, you know get his team into the playoffs. And so I'm empathetic to the difference between the East and the West in that conversation. But even if you look at kind of baseline indicators like margin of victory or net rating or things like that, I think the, the case is pretty strong that Davis's team should have been better at points than they were. And some of that's on him, some of that's on you know the management there, some of that's on his teammates. But there's no question that seeing him with LeBron is going to be a totally different beast. Yeah, and Peter mentions Milwaukee's system, and I do think that's the underrated variable, right? I mean, I don't think that we would be having this huge conversation about, oh, what's the talent gap light between Giannis's teammates and AD's teammates uh, prior to the system going in place, because that really is what opened everything up. It helped Giannis flourish. It helped all those role players be their best selves, and that's why they got to 60 wins, right? And we just haven't seen Anthony Davis yet play in that kind of a functional environment. I really thought that Alvin Gentry getting hired down there was going to unlock some of that by them playing faster, playing to his athletic benefit, uh, getting up and down, allowing him to just you know, you know, crush mismatches, go smaller at times so that he can punish people. I thought that was really going to, uh, you know, boost you know them to be one of the best offensive teams in the leagues, and it didn't really stick. You know, I mean, his his individual stats definitely ballooned up uh, these last few years, but in terms of the translation to winning, it was just never there consistently. And again, I think that we're ready for a new chapter with Anthony Davis. Right, he is in a a new environment with the best player that he's ever played with by a country mile. Uh, with a bunch of veteran guys who have their roles, they kind of know what they're supposed to be, and it's you know he's going to be a big part of the show this year, and I think he's uh you know he looks poised to me, uh you know for that moment. No, I completely agree. What's next? Well, I'm glad you asked. What's next? Lutz writes. There are big, long teams like Philadelphia and Milwaukee, and they're seen as a huge, tough matchup and a threat for even great small ball teams like the Warriors. I'm curious, is this going to be a year where big ball takes over in the NBA uh, or is, is small ball still going to reign supreme? I think it's a really good question from Lutz. I've wondered about this too, because small ball really derived from the Warriors. You know, the, the idea that they could put the death lineup out there, get away with it from a defensive rebounding perspective, having Draymond at center, uh, you know, Kevin Durant at the four. I mean, that's just a matchup nightmare for everyone, but that's poof, that's gone. Uh, do you think the NBA is going to evolve more into a, uh, you know, a situation where people are trying to either copycat Philly or match up with Philly? Because we have seen Milwaukee, you know, corner the market on Lopez brothers. Uh, you know, I think there's an eye towards Joel Embiid when it comes to that. Uh, and same deal with Toronto trading for Marcus Gasol at the deadline last year. I thought that was a move made with uh, Joel Embiid in, in mind as well. So are we in the midst of seeing a shift here stylistically, Rob? Well, I mean, I think if you're in the East, you have to be prepared for it one way or the other. Even if you're looking forward to Milwaukee and playing against them, you know, Brooke Lopez has shown he'll cut inside. He'll get some offensive rebounds. If you put a, a much smaller guy on him, he can exploit that too. And that's not even touching, you know, Joel Embiid, who really demands a certain kind of personnel on your roster just to be able to slow him down to begin with. 
So I, I do think that teams in the East have to be mindful of those things. But it's not like there's a bunch of seven-footers just lying around waiting to be signed who are competent players who you can throw into playoff action. I think that's kind of where the difference is between trying to emulate the Warriors or contain the Warriors and trying to emulate or contain these teams that are that are just so big. Because any team can you know find a couple shooters, get some guys who can move the ball or move without it, and try to run some reasonable facsimile of a motion offense that's well-spaced. That in itself is not terribly difficult. Now, you're not going to find people as cerebral as the players the Warriors have found or as effective and certainly not as good as shooters as Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, but you can kind of fake your way through it. And I don't know that you can fake your way through finding another seven-footer who plays like Joel Embiid. And that's a good way to put it. I mean, ultimately, you know, death lineup or no death lineup, three is still greater than two, right? Like that philosophical belief holds. So spacing is still going to be valued, pace and space. So you've got room for your one-on-one creators is still going to be put at a premium, I think kind of regardless, but especially in the Western Conference. And one other thing that I'm looking at is the small ball possibilities for the Western Conference's best teams are really, really interesting. I mean, obviously you've got Golden State still with Draymond. But you've got the Lakers with Anthony Davis, potentially. You've got the Clippers with Montrez Harrell, who I think is going to get a lot more attention this year, even than he did last year, just because of the halo effect of guys like Kawhi and Paul George. Montrez Harrell is a really, really good player, and he's a pretty effective, mobile, agile, cover ground type five. Uh, When they use him in that situation, I think they're going to have a really fun closing lineup. And then with Houston, they can still go to that P.J. Tucker lineup when they want to go small too, right? So... You've got a bunch of of really good teams in the Western Conference who could still play, you know, at a very high level going small. So I'm not sure we're going to see, you know, a tidal wave, uh, stylistic, uh, you know, changes here. But I do think we're going to see more clashes. I think everybody pretty much realized by the end of the Golden State era that they had to be able to match up with Golden State when Kevin was out there, right? Like they had to play the Golden State way. You know, Houston always talked about being obsessed with the Warriors. That was pretty much mandatory. And I'm not sure that there's any team out there right now that necessarily has a style of play that is so devastating that everyone else is going to be forced to kind of play their way. I think this is, you know, that's part of what, why the season is so magical is because, you know, the soul of the game or the, the aesthetics of the game uh, are a little bit up for debate right now. And I can't wait till March, too, when we see kind of which teams start to test the basketball gods in terms of trying to manipulate their matchups in the first round and the second round. And are really starting to look forward because you're right, like the the difference in how you might line up in a particular playoff bracket could be radically different. I mean, if you're if you're looking at a team like the Nuggets, for example, with Nikola Jokic, I'm sure you want to navigate the playoffs in a particular way where he's not being exposed to a certain kinds of space and movement and you're able to kind of play to his defensive strengths. Every team has to you know, have their eye to the playoffs in that way, and we'll see kind of which ones are willing to you know, participate in some gamesmanship in terms of where they seed. No, no doubt about it. Hey, we got a related question here from Sam. He's a Bucks fan. He said he was talking to his friend about a possible Eastern Conference Finals between the Bucks and the Sixers, and he's looking at Philadelphia's jumbo starting five with Joel Embiid, Al Horford, Tobias Harris, Josh Richardson and Ben Simmons. And that's a ridiculous lineup, by the way. I mean, that's a big, physical, brutish type lineup. And Sam is saying, look, why don't the Bucks counter with Brooke Lopez, Robin Lopez, Chris Middleton, Giannis, and Bledsoe? Basically try to go jumbo with jumbo. And then their conversation devolved from there. And they said, well, what if they had the two Lopez brothers, uh, the two Adenokounmpo brothers, and Middleton to have just a truly crazy lineup? Uh, and, you know, Sam, 
you know, put down the pipe a little bit here, man. You're getting a little bit too carried away, but I, I do like your thinking. I, I do like the brainstorm. But he wanted to know, Rob, what is the most entertaining or goofy lineup that you think that we could potentially see this season? And then also, what did you make of his idea here uh, with Philly's big ball lineup? Like, do you think they're going to be as devastating as they look on paper? Um, or do you think, are you with the skeptics or the pessimists who are saying, well, they could have some spacing issues on offense. Maybe this won't work out. No, I mean, I, I love that lineup just in terms of the defensive intelligence collectively from that group. And you're going to have lots of minutes too where you're kind of staggering Horford and Embiid and, and trying to really space things out, whether it's a, you know Mike Scott or whoever you want to throw out there as much as possible in more of a stretch four capacity. I think there's lots of interesting things Philly can do. And it's just the the adaptability that a guy like Horford gives you makes their lineup really fun. You know, they were already really good. They had a really good thing going, you know, with with Reddick and with Butler for part of the season. But I think this is a great chance for Tobias Harris too to, to kind of get his opportunity to to flex his game a little bit, to be a little bit more involved in the offense cuz cuz frankly they're going to need him. Uh, but in terms of lineups, I mean, one that came to mind for me was in Dallas where if we know anything about Rick Carlisle, he loves three-guard lineups. And he loves JJ Barea, which to me marries perfectly in kind of a big and small lineup. You've got three guys, JJ Barea, Seth Curry, uh, Jalen Brunson. Jalen Brunson, the tallest of those three, at like maybe 6'2. The other guys, you know, <laughs> probably around six, six foot or under club. And then you pair that with Kristaps Porzingis and Boban Marjanovic. You got a nice contrast in, in height there. You got a nice big and tall thing going. I, I, so I'm here for I, it from like a, a Muggsy Bogues and Manute Bowl photo kind of perspective. Yeah, so why am I picturing like Berea on Boban's shoulders and Seth Curry on Kristaps' <laughs> shoulders? And now it's like this big, like, you know, Giants on stilts alley-oop game. I feel like you also picked all the guys who might have been singled out by the NBA's height monitors. You know how they like updated everybody's official height this year? I think every single one of those guys that you mentioned was probably subjected to some uh, some height changing, don't you think? Oh, yeah. And I don't know about you, Ben. I grew up with one of those like fold-out Shaquille O'Neal height charts, probably from like a Slam magazine or something. I think we need to bust that out for whenever this lineup takes the court, do some official measurements, in-game action. It's really the only way to be sure. Yeah, you're what, like 6'6"? Six, 6'4", six? Six, but who's counting? Six, oh, well, you're 6'6 six, six by old NBA standards, 6'4 mm. by the new NBA standards. I see. Um, so I've got an idea on the lineups, too. It's a little bit wacky. I think there's a football thing called the triple wing. I'm not totally sure about that. You know, Don't hold me to that. What I want to see, though, is basketball triumph over football. Everyone knows how much I love this game. Let's, let's raise it up two notches. I want to see the quintuple wing offense. I want to see basically what I've I've floated in the past, interchangeable, right? Where you get five players all of similar height, similar weight, and uh, you allow them to just cover ground everywhere offensively, everywhere on defensively. It's sort of like the total uh, basketball version of you know the old total football thing they used to talk about decades ago, where everyone can play every position and and move around the court seamlessly. And I think the team to do it is the LA Clippers, okay? So for my quintuple wing lineup, I'm for sure starting with Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and Mo Harkless. Now from there, it gets a little bit trickier. I could go Rodney Magruder. I could cheat a little bit and go Landry Shamit. I could upsize a little bit and go Jermichael Green or Montrez Harrell. I mean, honestly, the most devastating possible combination would be Kawhi, Paul George, Harkless, uh, uh, Jermichael Green and Harold. I'm not sure. Like, if you see those guys coming in a game, you might just go back to the locker room. Like, if that's the five that you've got to deal with, that sounds like a very, very long and difficult night. Um, so that's what I want to see from Doc Rivers. And even after spending some time around him uh, later this offseason and during 
uh, media day. I'm not completely clear on how he's going to handle his lineups. I think he's got a lot of options here, Rob. I think he can go super big if he wants to with guys like Zubak, uh, Jermichael Green, Montrez Harrell. Uh, so he could you know, shift Paul George and Kawhi Leonard down to the two and three. He could also go smaller and shift them up to the three and four, which I think is what we'll probably see in late game situations, especially during the playoffs. But it's just an interesting question to watch here early on in the season because uh, you know, they, ha- they haven't really talked about a load management program for Kawhi. Uh, they haven't necessarily said, oh, he's going to sit out for 20 games for rest. One way you could protect a, Gua- a guy like Kawhi Leonard is to just play him at the two or the three and, you know, let the other guys, you know, handle the big pounding inside. And, you know, we'll see how much uh, Doc Rivers wants to do that and then how much he wants to maybe explore just his best five-man groups uh, as the season unfolds. It- it'll be a, you know, a kind of a good thing to circle here mentally. Yeah, I mean, the, the West, as we've talked about, is all about that optionality this year in terms of having, you know, your bigger lineups, your smaller lineups. You want to get shooting from different kinds of places to stress different kinds of defense. I think the Clippers are the prime example of that. But, you know, on your interchangeable, I'm curious how you feel about kind of the hellmouth version of that. I know Zach Lowe has floated the idea of the Knicks playing five power forwards at once, maybe run some Julius Randle at point. How are you no, feeling no, no, about? No, 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 no. Stop right there. This is not an idea. That's their lineup. That's all they've got. Okay, <laughs> they don't have a choice. They're playing five power forwards one way or another. It's true, but you know we already live in kind of the darkest timeline. I think we've accepted it. So let's just rubber stamp it. Let's run that thing out there and just get the worst basketball we can manage. Needless to say, I think the Clippers five wings is beating the Knicks five power forwards. But I love to be proven wrong. So let's see what you've got, David Fisdale. Uh, We got another Sixers question here from Dave. Okay, Rob, he writes, Ben Simmons recently pointed out that he is quote unquote still an all-star and presumably Simmons had to say this because everybody was mocking him again on Twitter like they do basically every single day. Uh, But Dave writes, someone failed to help Simmons realize that he is only an all-star in the East. Oof. Burn from Dave. Okay, Rob, this is my question to you. You just got done with the top 100 process. Um, is the internet too hard on Ben Simmons? Because to me, the internet seems too hard on Ben Simmons. I think the internet's too hard on any player who has an easily observable flaw, whether that's Ben Simmons in his shot, whether that's James Harden in his defense. I think we create these kind of false equivalencies where we, we imagine the scales in our mind and we say, okay, here's all the good things that Ben Simmons does on one side and on the con side, oh, he can't shoot. We all acknowledge that shooting is really important, really important in the modern game. And because, you know, that's such an incontrovertible truth, the fact that he is not a shooter, it becomes overwhelming relative to all these great things that he offers as a basketball player. I just I just don't think that's fair. I don't think it's true to the sport or the kinds of teams you can build around him. I think there's a lot of, you know, when you talk about Ben Simmons, you have to cast him in a particular light knowing that he can't shoot or knowing that he won't shoot, which is maybe the more important thing of the two. But that doesn't take away from the fact that this is one of the best transition players in basketball and a guy that can get you out in transition more than most guards. One of the most you know, flexible and versatile defenders at the point guard that we have in the league. A great rebounder, a great defender, a great playmaker who can draw attention, like in those transition situations, kick out to shooters, can create for other shooters in ways like guys like Giannis can too. I think we get a little stuck on this guy can't do this one particular thing, and we all agree on that, and therefore that player is you know, washed or bad or a joke or a fraud. And Ben Simmons is far from those things. He's he's really good. He is really, really good. I think what you said in the middle there is, is kind of how I feel. I think he gets criticized because it, his flaw is not just a basketball flaw that he can't shoot. 
his flaw is a moral flaw in some people's eyes in that he's afraid to shoot, right? And that's just sort of like unforgivable because why would someone with his incredible physical tools and basketball IQ and touch and vision and everything else be afraid to shoot a basketball when, you know, your five-year-old cousin has no problem, you know, jacking up a three-pointer from beyond the arc, right? I think that's what people get hung up on. And I, I don't think it's necessarily fair. I mean, to me, you know, people like to call him the tall Rondo or whatever else. I mean, Rondo hasn't been comparable to Ben Simmons in probably seven years. You know what I mean? In terms of like actually being a positive impact type player, being a plus defender, being a reliable source of offense for his teammates, not, you know, stat hunting, uh, you know, keeping the tempo where it needs to be. And then Rondo has never finished above the rim or around the basket and never put the kind of pressure that Ben Simmons can put on a team uh, in transition, uh, you know, quite the same way really at any point of his career, right? So I think that, you know, those kinds of surface level uh, comparisons, they bug me. Uh, and I do feel the need to uh, stand up for my, you know, fellow Ben uh, at this point. I am a little bit uh, interested, though, as this talk starts to bubble about the Sixers spacing issues, because I think most of this summer, I was kind of like you, Rob, I was really focused on the defensive ceiling. Like this team could just be unreal defensively. They've got so many smart physical guys, um, and they're going to be playing in such a depleted conference that they should just be rolling through everyone. And I still think that's true. Are you totally sold it's going to work offensively, though? Because when you're looking, you know, they take away J.J. Redick, who's not only a great floor spacer, but also attracts a ton of attention by moving around off the ball on offense. Um, they also take away Jimmy Butler, which probably makes uh, you know, Ben Simmons' life a little bit easier because he's not fighting for touches. He doesn't have to get into these ego battles maybe on a night-to-night basis. They add a guy like Horford who's incredibly unselfish. Uh, they add a guy like Josh Richardson who I think is willing to do the little things. Um, when, you're, when you're talking about that trade-off, like the guys who left this summer, the main guys, and the guys who arrived this summer, um, you know, through the Ben Simmons lens, like is he a winner or is he a loser uh, from those personnel changes? I think it's tough because the, the Sixers and this contrast really starkly with the Bucks just have so much to figure out. You know, in taking away, you know, the Redick, Joel Embiid kind of dribble handoff action that fuels a lot of their half-court offense, all of a sudden you have a lot more possessions where you have to navigate the fact that Ben can't shoot with the fact that you want to, you know, post up Joel. You have to, you know, figure out how you want to use Tobias Harris this year and if you want to amp up you know, his usage or his type of usage. Maybe you want to, you know, you want to run a little more pick and roll this year, something the Sixers have been kind of loath to do in a, in a traditional sense. And so I think they have a lot of things they need to resolve, but kind of in a good way, in a way where you have a lot of high AQ players, you have some good playmakers on this team, you have a lot of guys who are versatile and can be deployed in a lot of different capacities. These are kind of good problems to have as a coach, but they are things that you kind of have to work your way through over the course of a year. Yeah, I think, you know, in general, I think Philly is better off from the Simmons perspective. I could kind of talk myself into either way, right? You know, I, I do think the Reddick, uh, you know, defection will hurt during the regular season. I think they're probably going to be okay in the playoffs because he's the type of guy who just regularly got neutralized in that format. Um, and then I do think that Horford, uh, I, I think the whole thing kind of hinges on him, right? Like if he really works, if they're able to strike the right balance, if he, they can stagger his minutes with Embiid, uh, so that Simmons always kind of has, you know, a really high quality uh, big to play with. Um, you know, this this team could be really, really good. I think the regular season record will f- for sure 
um, be better than it was last year. Uh, I do wonder, though, is this still an idealized situation for Simmons in terms of him getting his number, him getting his attention, him being viewed as an all-star uh, like you know he clearly cares about uh, from the quote that we got from uh, you know Dave the emailer. Um, I think those are still kind of open questions uh, as we're looking at his career arc. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's ever going to be an ideal situation where he and Joel Embiid are on the same team. But that doesn't mean they can't be really good. It doesn't mean they can't win a championship. There's just kind of inherent grading between a big point guard who has to be, at least at this point, a more interior player with, you know, maybe the most dominant back to the basket player in terms of sheer size and and the versatility of his post skill set that we have in the game. Man, I'm really glad you said that, Rob, because doesn't it feel like these two guys are either headed for a divorce before or after they win the title? It's like their two fates are either, hey, we were able to make it work, we won a title, and then we went our separate ways, or their fates are, we we just can't try anymore. You know, we've beat ourselves our heads against the wall. It's too much. Uh, it's time for these two guys to get their own teams. Like, I, it really does feel like that's where this partnership is headed. I think when, when people in general around the league and fans of the league talk about superstars and superstar breakups, it's it's always, you know, cast in very melodramatic terms about guys getting really angry at each other and these kind of like operatic blow-ups and, oh, these irreconcilable differences between them. The reality is, like, if you're Ben Simmons, it's not unreasonable to think that at a certain point, not only would you want a certain kind of spotlight and acclaim on a team that you're probably just not going to get when Joel Embiid's your teammate— but you might want a little bit more freedom. You might want a little bit less of that kind of specific scrutiny on your shot. You may want a more fast-paced, open style on a regular basis. Like these are reasonable things for players to want. And often, you know, the reasons why players choose to play apart or split up or request a trade or sign elsewhere in free agency, they're kind of for simple reasons like that, more so than some, you know, big conflict that was hidden behind the scenes or something like that. Well, guys will break up with other guys for any possible reason these days. I mean, we, like we, we have reached the, you know, the limit in terms of, you know, different stereotypical reasons for uh, superstars to leave their situations after these last couple summers. Hey, we, we've got a couple more questions here. I love this one from Ross. He says, I'm currently on my way to Singapore for a much needed family vacation. DeAndre Ayton spoke about the aspect of his game that would improve the most this season. And he said it was his three point shot. Will this improvement propel the Suns into the sunrise stratosphere instead of something like, oh, I don't know, Aiton working on his defensive prowess? Now, obviously, Ross is getting a little cheeky here with this question, uh, which I respect. But what do you think, uh, Rob? Does it bother you that our guy DeAndre Aiton, uh, you know, taken before Luka Doncic and, and Trey Young and a lot of other really talented players in that class, does it bother you that the main headlines from him this offseason were that he wants to play power forward rather than center and that he wants to be uh, you know, viewed more as a three-point shooter? Does that strike any alarm bells for you? Not really. I mean, the Suns are still pretty bad, and they're going to be pretty bad this season. Like, This is the time to try that stuff, to, to stretch his game, to see where he can fit. If he's a player who can play both the four and the five, that's great. If he can shoot threes, that's great. I mean, it would be awesome if he were a better defender too, but like to run my abacus over here, weren't the Suns like one of the three or four worst offenses in the league last season? They can use literally anything they can get in terms of creating spacing, creating a functional environment for guys like Devin Booker to do their thing as well. I think that the Suns could use him, you know, stretching the floor, spacing out. He's already a pretty good mid-range shooter, has some good touch. I could see him adding to that part of his game. Yeah, the math checks out, Rob. The Suns sucked everywhere. I can confirm. <laughs> I can confirm. Uh, I'll be honest, I'm going the other way on this one. 
Mm. This does this does bother me a little bit. Um, the headline I wanted to read from DeAndre Ayton this summer was, I went to Hakeem Olajuwon basketball camp for three months, and I picked up every defensive technique that he was able to impart to me, and now I'm just going to be an absolute monster, and I want to win most improved player. That is the storyline I want for DeAndre Ayton, not sort of like, skinny Andre Drummond is sort of where he seems like he wants to be headed a little bit here. I'm going to just float around on the the three-point line. I don't love it. Now, in terms of his offensive impact, we know he can finish very well around the basket area. We know that he can step out and shoot that mid-range shot. He's comfortable doing that. He has the touch. It does make sense for him to be able to stretch out to the corner at times, uh, shoot three-pointers. But what else is he going to do with the ball out there? I mean, I don't really view him as a guy who's going to be, uh, you know, putting the ball down, attacking, uh, off the dribble and creating quality offense. I mean, that sounds to me like, you know, the potential for lots of turnovers and, uh, you know, other bad things, uh, you know, potentially happening. So I'm kind of with Ross's snark here a little bit, you know, focus on what you're supposed to be doing. And also, by the way, like when guys are fives and to me, Aiton is clearly a five, you know, man up, own up. And I'm not trying to go like 1970s, you know, high school coach out here, but be a five. You don't need to be a four. Uh, we don't want to play you with a traditional five. That's a weird-looking lineup. I don't think it's going to be optimized. And I think long-term, if he's going to become a star, he's going to become a star at center. So I want him focused on that uh, You know, when it comes to his development. Now, I will say this about the Suns, because we rag on them a lot. Uh, and <laughs> very nice underhanded diss to their offense, by the way. I really enjoyed that. Um, but I have some faith in Monty Williams here. You know, I think he's a really good leadership personality. I think he's a really good communicator. He's an experienced head coach, which they have not had down there in a long time. He's going to fix the obvious stuff because he's been there before. He's done that before. And so I do think that's going to help both guys like uh, DeAndre Ayton and Devin Booker understand what it's about to take the next step in the NBA. And both those guys need to do it. So uh, from that standpoint, there's just a slight dose of Suns optimism uh, at the end of like five minutes of ragging on DeAndre Ayton. It's a new day. You know, anything could happen. <laughs> All right. Last question we got from Alex. Uh, he writes, I was intrigued by your recent discussion of the rookie of the year runner up. And just to refresh, Rob, uh, you know, we discussed, you know, if Zion wins rookie of the year, who are the leading candidates maybe to, to take second place? And I think the names that came up were John Morant and Darius Garland. Uh, but Alex wonders, is Michael Porter Jr. deserving of some love in this conversation for Denver? So what do you think? I mean, Michael Porter Jr. has been kind of off the radar for the last two years, an injured season uh, in college, obviously a redshirt uh, rookie season last year for Denver. Is he poised to you know, break out uh, as a rookie of the year candidate this year? You know, this feels like a call for some generic praise for Michael Porter Jr. to me, which makes me not <laughs> want to respond to it. Wait a minute. Are you saying Alex is like his uncle or his mother or something? I mean, is there like a direct family member who's kind of trolling us for positivity? Is that what you're saying? Well, look, we got burners everywhere. We got we to start screening these emails a little more carefully. But I will say this for Michael Porter. I think he could get kind of a Malcolm Brogdon kind of candidacy in terms of being a contributor to a really good team or to a playoff team that could, you know, in terms of the rookie of the year, charges that conversation a little bit. You have a lot of guys who are, you know, really productive on bad teams. You got some guys who are pretty good on some kind of underwhelming lottery teams. And to be a different kind of candidate, a guy who's actually doing some good for a team in the Nuggets that's looking to, to be in the group to contend for the title this year, I think that gives him 
a nice edge into that conversation. But ultimately, I do think there's just there's just too many guys in Denver for him to play a lot and to register a huge impact that's going to compete with some of the other big names in this conversation. Yeah, I see two concerns, but you hit the first one. It's, you know, is there going to be the opportunity? Is there going to be enough leash for him to learn as he goes to play through mistakes and those kinds of questions? They have a lot of veteran guys. Uh, They're not an old team by any stretch, but they've got veterans and guys who have played big minutes, quality minutes for them here these last couple of years who have earned the right to have that be their spot. And, you know, it's that's a challenge to try to beat out that type of player and get yourself a major rotation role uh, for somebody who's coming off of two years of injuries. I mean, that's absolutely a a hurdle right off the top. The other question I have is just style of play, because we know what Denver wants to do. They want the ball in Jokic's hand. They want the ball popping quickly. They want lots of, uh, you know, uh, moving, cutting, passing, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, And they've also got guys who are going to be eating second and third in that order already pretty much lined up with with players like Jamal Murray, uh, Gary Harris, and then even Paul Millsap to a lesser extent, right? So um, even though they have this egalitarian offense, I'm not sure there's going to be that many offensive opportunities for a player like Porter to do what he wants to do, right? And we know from sort of his high school mixtapes, him being a very highly regarded high school prospect, he wants to create a lot off the bounce. He wants to isolate. He wants to go one-on-one. He wants to score. And there's going to be an adjustment or, or maybe even some friction there between what a player like Jokic or what a coach like Mike Malone is going to want from a player like Michael Porter Jr. And then what Michael Porter Jr. is going to feel comfortable doing, which is the stuff that he's kind of done best, you know, his entire life, right? So to me, I could see that just taking a while to shake out. I'm not sure he's going to put up major numbers there in Denver uh, as a rookie. And I just think there's going to be some other guys, maybe they play on worse teams, you know, maybe they have much higher turnover numbers and other negative indicators. But, you know, because they've got the box score stats there, you know, the voters are going to be uh, giving them some preference maybe over a player like Michael Porter Jr. Well, I think this could be a really positive season for Porter from an upside perspective, you know, for the Nuggets to get a guy into their group that has a lot of potential to grow and could be kind of exactly what they need in terms of a big perimeter score. And yet he could do that and still be nowhere near the rookie of the year race. So, it's, it, I mean, it's almost beside the point for a player in his position, I think. Yeah, uh, very true. Hey, guess what, Rob? You survived. We made it through our first episode of Open Floor Together. Uh, I really appreciate uh, your help here. And like I said at the top of the podcast, I just want to thank everybody for emailing in nice things about Andrew. It was so heartwarming to see all those messages. Um, I know he read them. I know he saw them. It was pretty much overwhelming at certain points how many we received. And I appreciate you guys doing that. And I also appreciate you sticking with us you know, through this transition period. Hey, Rob, they can check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for our page. Uh, it's two words, open floor. Once you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy. As I mentioned off the top too, if you email the word sharp to openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com, you will be uh, kept apprised of any podcast developments as they should unfold here over the next weeks or months or, or whatever it may be. And also, if you have any basketball questions, you know, preseason has started. I watched Zion Williamson's debut tonight. How much fun was that? I've uh, been watching Anthony Davis uh, kill it for the Lakers, like I mentioned. If you're watching games and you're seeing something, let us know. Email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And Rob, don't forget now, I'm on Instagram, at Oliver. Do you want to plug your Instagram? I do not. Oh, perfect. Well, great. Then I'll just plug mine again at Ben Oliver on Instagram. Guys, thanks so much for hanging with us. We will be back later this week. And until then, Rob, 
I will talk to you. Hey. 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 Hey.